0: Good morning. My name's Adam. I'm uh, obviously I'm preaching this morning for your, uh, for Tim in his absence. I'm happy to be here with you guys. Until recently, just a little bit about us. Um, I was the assistant pastor up at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in Cedar Park. And now I've taken a call as the past assistant pastor of church planning down in San Antonio. So we're moving a little bit further down the road from where we are. But I'm um, excited for what's next. So if you uh, happen to be interested or want to know more, I'd love to talk with you later about it. Um, The sermon lesson this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, all of chapter 8. Remain seated while I read it for you, Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, thankful for your word. Would you bless your people this morning by opening our eyes? opening our ears and our hearts to hear what the Spirit says to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, a long time ago, it's a story from the past, I began noticing that my phone, my cell phone, it wasn't working very well. Um, It was glitching. It was having problems. Apps would shut down randomly. Performance just wasn't what it had been. And then one day I got a notification on my phone that it was no longer going to be updated. So as technology suggests, I needed a new phone. And what I had been carrying in my pocket and using on a daily basis was no longer necessary for me almost. It was obsolete. It had cost me so much just a few years ago, and now it was useless Its utility had been eclipsed by a newer and far more expensive piece of machinery, a model which I now had the opportunity to upgrade to. So as someone who tends to keep expensive things for a long period of time until they don't work anymore, I was kind of frustrated with my phone that it wouldn't work any longer, that it wasn't going to be updated, even though I'd paid a lot for it, even though I had paid my service bill every month, even though I kept my phone in pristine condition by having a military-grade case on it with tempered glass, all that stuff. Despite my best efforts, that phone was obsolete. Couldn't use it. Today, we're considering Hebrews chapter 8, and what the writer to the Hebrews considers as the epitome of all upgrades is Jesus. He's our superior high priest. And he has a superior new covenant that he mediates. So let's turn our attention to him this morning and see what the writer to the Hebrews would have us learn. The first stop is uh, the writer to the Hebrews telling his people that they are indeed privileged people. The whole point of chapter seven previously, for those of you who are aware, was to point out that Jesus is a perfect high priest. How does chapter 7 say that Jesus was made perfect? For those of you who are familiar with chapter 7 in Hebrews, it was through his suffering and his rejection as a sinless man, a perfect man. Not only was Jesus not like the earthly high priests, he was better than them. Why? Because he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the writer says. This language draws us from thinking about Jesus as the suffering Jesus in chapter 7 into his exalted state now. Chapter 8 here. David once wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Colossians 3, it tells us, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Jesus, we are told, is not only a perfected high priest, but he is a ruling and reigning high priest. What could that mean? You know, a high priest would enter the Holy of Holies once a year to offer the blood of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Just one time a year. Yom Kippur is the the name, the Jewish name. And he would offer a spotless sacrifice without blemish for the sins of the people, for his own sins as well. But after offering that sacrifice and pouring out the blood of the lamb, he would leave and then he would continue doing his work because he had to continue doing those routine sacrifices for the people. There was still more things to do for them always. The work of humans and the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient to cover the sins of God's people And the writer wants us to know that Jesus has now superseded all of those Old Covenant ordinances. Jesus, by contrast to earthly priests, sat down at the right hand of majesty. He's a heavenly priest. That word majesty is only used of God in the whole Bible, by the way. Jesus is the perfect son who suffered and ascended into heaven to offer himself for his people But sitting down, friends, it points to the fact that Jesus is also the divine ruler of our universe. It's power language. It's authority. It's dominion. It's majesty. We don't really have an equivalent modern notion of what it meant for the Hebrews. A priest could never be a king. A king could never be a priest. Kings were supposed to protect and defend their people. Priests were supposed to bring them to God. Kings were supposed to seek their welfare and govern with care. For Jesus to be a high priest in the heavenly places and seated at God's right hand meant that he was something wholly more new and important, more incredible than any high priest who'd come before because he ministered in the true tent set up by the Lord in the heavens. Why would the writer point this out, though? Early Jewish Christians who were undoubtedly in this congregation, they prized the earthly, the ritual, the ceremony. It was special. It was elaborate. It was historic. They'd been worshiping this way for centuries. It was real. And how often do we too look to what's here, friends, instead of the heavenly? We look to the earthly instead of the heavenly. We settle for transience Instead of transcendence, we trade spiritual for secular. It's tied into our need to supersede the previous in pursuit of the progressive. What do I mean by what I just said? Taking technology as an example, we're always looking at the next upgrade. The moment we get a new phone, a tablet, or a gaming system, we don't have to wait long before the next version is supposed to hit the stores. And many times it's already scheduled generally costing significantly more. I can still remember long lines for PlayStations and Xboxes at Walmart and even dating myself a bit, Windows 95 at the mall. (laughs) There were long lines for that. It's the way of the world. You know, progress demands that we update, that we upgrade what is obsolete. We do the same thing with our clothes, our homes, people. People. You name it. They become useless because they no longer meet our needs. For instance, many today believe that there was a time in humanity's past when there was the flowering of religion. As mankind progressed, they see, you see, they needed religion to help them through all of the violent and unpredictable world in which they lived. But now, as mankind has become enlightened, as we make more scientific achievements and discoveries and advancements, we realize that we don't need religion. That's what the world says. Modern people now look into themselves for truth. Religion has become useless in our world today. Instead of clinging to earthly religion, we replace God with ourselves. And some of you might be thinking, why would anyone need Jesus? Wasn't he just a good teacher who had some great ideas about how to treat other people? Wasn't he a prophet who pointed people toward the importance of living by the standards of our common humanity? Wasn't he just a man who others later deified in order to set themselves up with their own religious system? We'll get to some of these things in a little bit. But the point the writer is making here is that Jesus is such a high priest. One who has entered into the heavenly places to offer not animal blood, but his own blood. And then sitting down in victory and power and authority at the right hand of God, the majesty in the heavens. The Hebrews need Christ and his ministry. And Christ and his ministry alone, by the way... To gain an audience with God because Jesus, as the Son of God, mediates between them. In Jesus, the perfectly compassionate, perfect high priest is also the all-powerful ruler of everything and everyone and everywhere. Perfect power, perfect compassion come together. What comfort this must have been for folks facing persecution. What comfort it must be for us today. To understand why this is comforting, though, we need to understand a little bit about the new covenant that Jesus mediates, a covenant that the writer tells us is better than the old one. Some of you may not know, what is a covenant, maybe some of you are asking. For those who've forgotten or those who don't know, let's take a few moments to talk through it. A covenant was a relationship in which two parties would come together and mutually support one another. Ancient Near Eastern people of which the Hebrews were from, the Hebrew Bible, all those folks, typically entered into these treaties in order to protect themselves from aggressive nations and neighbors. One party would be stronger and agree to help the weaker party. And in exchange, the weaker party would offer some kind of goods or services to the stronger party. And the way they entered into these agreements back then was they would take a bunch of animals and they would cut them in half and lay them open, and then they would walk between the pieces and they would be saying in that act that if I don't keep my portion of this agreement, let me end up like these animals. In Genesis, God called a man named Abraham. Some of you know him. Some of you may not. And in Genesis 15, we see this actual covenant scene taking place. God had promised Abraham an heir. He had also promised descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand of the sea. But Abraham was old and he wanted to know for certain if he could trust God's promise. How can I know for sure, he asked. And God tells him to bring a bunch of different animals. He says, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, a ram, a turtle dove and a pigeon. Cut them in two, except for the birds, they're small. After Abraham does this, he stays up all day shooing away the birds and night falls and eventually Abraham falls into a deep sleep and while he sleeps God appears as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch Genesis tells us and passes between the pieces Sounds pretty cool right But the amazing thing here is that it's only God who walked through those pieces friends Abraham is out. He's sleeping. He has no knowledge of this at the moment. He can't participate, friends. God alone passes through the pieces and covenants with Abraham that no matter what happens, no matter, he will accomplish his promises to make Abraham a numerous people and to give him a land and a place to bless the world. And now fast forward 500 years from that time. Moses has led Israel out of Egypt God crushed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, where God gives them his law. And he covenants with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. The people who he had saved already. And was now wanting them to live according to his rules, his commands. This law contained all of the daily sacrifices. All the things we just talked about here The ordinances, the rules of the priest who ministered in the holy places, including the once a year sacrifice on the day of atonement. Now, I explain all this so you kind of get an idea. The writer to the Hebrews is saying that all that old covenant that was enacted in the time of Moses was not perfect. It was faultless. It was not faultless, excuse me. Now, how can this be? Some of you might ask. The promises are better in the New Covenant. And the writer to the Hebrews illustrates this by quoting Jeremiah 31. And it's the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And he quotes it here in full because it gets to the heart of what the writer to the Hebrews is really driving at. All the provisions, you see, all the decor, all the elaborate ceremony was never meant to accomplish what it pointed toward. It wasn't faith in the sacrifices. It wasn't the faith in the sacrifices that the old covenant wanted. It was always faithful trust in the hearts of God's people toward him. In other words, the fault that God found with the old covenant wasn't with the provisions. As rudimentary as they were, which we'll get to in a bit. The fault was with the people, friends. The flaw is with our human software. We need an upgrade. The people who came out of Egypt watched God save them and then hoard after a golden calf that they made with their own hands. They disbelieved God and his promises and ultimately a whole generation fell in the wilderness. The people who eventually crossed the Jordan into the promised land, they faithfully defeated their enemies, but then they turned aside when Joshua died the history of God's covenant people from paradise to promised land through the establishment of the nation with all the kings and we know how they were. It showed that the hearts of God's people are repeatedly unfaithful to the God who saved them over and over. Earthly religion was incapable of saving them. Their kings were incapable of leading them in righteousness. Their priests were incapable of exercising compassion and faithfulness. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't follow God with a whole heart. They couldn't do it. And that's why God promised the new covenant, because we needed our hearts changed. We needed a new operating system as God's people. God's promise was going to be upgraded to do that. You see, there can be a disconnect here with seekers unbelievers and even for some Christians why would God require all of this stuff in order to worship him and then allow his people to be defeated exiled oppressed by other people why would God give you rules to live a good life and then find fault when you did your best to live up to those rules why would we want to serve a God who just looks at us and he's just unhappy with what we're doing why why isn't God happy when we just follow those rules? All of these are good questions. Some who question Christianity naturally see religion as kind of a poison. Philosophers are famous for believing that it's a power play to manipulate weak people, preferring the fleshly over the spiritual, like we talked about earlier. Since there's no God, they say, then nothing in religion has validity, it's only a private preference. There's no truth in something that can't be experienced or reasoned toward in our own hearts and minds, they say. We have become the ultimate arbiters of our reality. That's what we've become. Because we're the ultimate authority in our own life, no one can tell us who we are, who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live. And anyone claiming that authority needs to be distrusted because they're just out for their own gain. Anyone claiming this authority is oppressive. And as a result, everything that springs from our own hearts, which we cultivate in our minds, it becomes our functional faith. The writer to the Hebrews is showing us that the problems we think we have with God and his word are actually problems we have in our own selves. In other words, the human heart, friends, is incapable of remaining in God's covenant. We're incapable of being faithful to him. Following the rules of religion doesn't save us. Anyone can follow instructions. You don't have to have a changed heart to follow orders. Following our own hearts doesn't save us either. If we follow our own heart, why, we can make up whatever rules we want. We can live however we want. We can be whoever we want to be. Which brings us to the main conclusion, actually, of the whole passage here. If our hearts are the problem, what does that mean? Scripture has so much to say about the condition of our hearts. Jeremiah 17 says the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The gospel of Luke in chapter 6 tells us that out of the evil treasure of our hearts, evil is produced because what's abundant in here is what comes out. David cried in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The testimony of God's word, friends, time and again, is that the human heart is deceitful and wicked and sick. Remember, God saved his people and entered into a covenant with them, but his people were unfaithful to him. A covenant is like a marriage. God married his people And was faithful to them over and over and over again. And repeatedly they were unfaithful to him. Through idolatry. Pagan worship. Seeking gain from earthly power. But he gives them the very thing that they need. To heal them. And to save them from brokenness. Look with me in verse 10 and following. One, he's going to personally put his law into the minds of his people. He's going to write it on their hearts. And because of that, he will be their God. He will show himself as their all-powerful, authoritative, mighty, sovereign king who doesn't just give orders to be followed or rules to be kept, he will literally see to it that they're able to remain faithful to his covenant because their hearts and minds will be centered on keeping God's law, on loving him, knowing him more and more, becoming more like Jesus, being transformed into the likeness of him. They will be able to follow him and remain faithful to him, not because they meticulously adhered to all the rules But because God will do a work within their hearts that they're incapable of doing otherwise. The second thing that God promises is that everyone in the new covenant will truly know Him. Members of the new covenant will truly know Him because of His mercy and His forgiveness, He says. Those who keep God's covenant from the heart do so not because they have the rules and rights down because their external earthly, fleshly preferences happen to align with God's word, but because God looks on their wanderings and he mercifully pardons them. That's good news. It's bound up in the promise that God will remember their sins no more. And this is an important point of application for us this morning. You see, friends, we might look at this passage and think that When we come to faith, God is saying that he will forget everything evil we've ever done. This might seem comforting to us because many of us were troubled by the evil things we've done, by the wickedness in our hearts that continually comes up inside of us all the time on a daily basis. We're burdened by the ways that we haven't lived up to being a child of God. We've continued to offer our sacrifices, but we still feel like we're not right with them. We're weighed down by the effort it takes to say and do and live the right way. And it crushes us. We're burdened by the wicked thoughts of our minds, the hatred and animosity we harbor towards other people, the pride and arrogance we have that we run to to justify our sin, everyone gets this at a gut level. We all do. To have all that stuff we'd rather not bring up, be forgotten by God, would be great, right? The good news is that you can't have your sins forgotten by God. You see, forgetting leaves a possibility that he could be reminded What God says in Jeremiah's New Covenant passage, which the writer to the Hebrews is saying here, is that when God's people come to know him, they do so because he has changed their hearts and mind personally and has forgiven them of their sins. And when God forgives you, friends, he doesn't simply forget what you did. He does not remember what you did. Forgetting means a failure to remember, see? Or... Inadvertently neglecting to bring something to the mind or attention. Forgetting means that there could be something that reminds you or something or someone from the past that brings up those memories again. Forgetting, um, but God says, excuse me, remembering is the ability to recall an experience. God says that when his people truly know him in a covenant relationship, He not only does the work of giving them the faithfulness they need to be committed to Him, even better. When He brings this faithfulness into their hearts and minds, He says that He will no longer have the ability to remember your sins. That's good news, friends. That's life. No longer remember the terrible things we've done. No longer hold our wickedness against us. Absolution from guilt and punishment... This is good news, friends. Do you feel like a weight lift off of you when you think about that? It's incredible. How can this be, you say? Scripture tells us about Jesus, friends. The sinless Son of God. Made perfect through His suffering. His sacrificial death on the cross. Who ascended into the heavens after He raised from the dead. And now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and majesty. Ruling and reigning, yet offering his own blood for you. The gift that our superior high priest offered was himself. Not the blood of animals. Bulls, goats, rams. That stuff was no good. He did all this so that his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The family picture that we see in Revelation. At the wedding supper of the Lamb. So that all that stuff might become a reality through giving a new heart of flesh to replace our hearts of stone. And that's why when you trust in Jesus, friends, as your only hope, your Savior and your Lord, not in religion, not in good living, not in Christian tradition, not in being true to yourself, when you place your trust in Jesus, friends, you can be sure that the power and authority of God, who made the world and everything in it and presides over it in justice and righteousness, is the same high priest whose compassionate love for his people pleads for them as they walk through the challenges of this life. The temptations to turn aside from following God and place our hopes in the ornate and the beautiful, the earthly, the fleshly, in ourselves, instead of the heavenly and the spiritual. In Jesus, friends, we are sure of better things because God has walked through the pieces alone. He is patient with our wanderings and our wayward hearts. He pleads with us to trust in Jesus as our surety. Our only hope, the writer tells us, is found in a renewed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. A heart which longs to live for God in lives of righteousness and holiness. Because we have been made willing and able to believe by God's saving grace, friends. That's just beautiful news. Friends, believe in Jesus. So that you too might receive the gift of life in your heart. His compassionate love for you. And the power of his resurrection and ascension. Which gives us peaceful eternal access to the mercy of God. Friends let us repent of our failure to trust this salvation. And believe anew that we might have the software of our hearts upgraded. From uselessness and obsolescence. To keep covenant with God. Only a new heart can do, friends. And that makes the new covenant better than the old. Friends, what Jesus infinitely is more worthy and more beautiful and believable than religion can offer, than what our world can give, give your heart to him. Friends, believe in Jesus today and you can experience the freedom that comes from our superior high priest and his superior new covenant. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for Jesus and for his sacrifice for us. We ask that you would take what we've heard today, that you would form and mold and shape and tear down the walls around our stony hearts. Pray that you would give us life through your spirit, Lord. Help us to live for you. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.